Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, as uh, Dan has prayed, as we have uh, been reminded, your word is a lamp to our feet. It is sweet. It is honey. It is enriching. It is life-giving. It is the place in which we encounter afresh the risen Lord Jesus Christ through his word carried by his spirit. And we pray, therefore, that uh, your spirit would be active, bringing his word to us. May we hear him speak as we have need, as individuals, uh, as uh, uh, as a congregation, as a church family, help us to think rightly about um, uh, the issues of uh, sex and sexual uh, morality and marriage as we open up this part of your word to us. And help us to be a community that uh, does not shy away from these things, that seeks repentance and finds forgiveness uh, where necessary, and, and that commits to supporting one another in the life you call us to lead. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, we're in Proverbs 5, uh, friends. We don't have time to look at all of chapter 5, so we're going to start at verse 15. And I'm going to read that as we go through uh, the, um, uh, the sermon this evening. I shall take out bits as we go through it. But we're starting in verse 15 and finishing at the end of uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 5. Um, there are many things that the Bible says about marriage. Uh, uh, well, here are two. One... Marriage is a gift of God. Two, marriage is a spiritual battleground. It's a gift of God, but it's also a battleground. It's a battleground because uh, married couples uh, face particular pressures, uh, some from without, uh, particular spiritual pressures. The devil loves to attack marriages. Uh, there are cultural presuppositions and attitudes that undermine and attack marriage. And, of course, there are pressures from within. I think, it is fair to say that, I think it is fair to say that nothing exposes our weaknesses and our own uh, sins, the sins of our own hearts, quite like a lifelong intimate partnership. Marriage is two sinners living together and increasingly revealing themselves to each other. And that is not always pretty. But I think that is part of the gift. Because marriage, like many other areas of life, whether we're married or not, is a God-given cauldron in which we are to be refined. This is a spiritual war, if you like, that we can win because God never calls someone into marriage, never calls them into anything in life, actually, without committing himself to equip them for that which he calls them into. And, for, uh, and by uh, involving himself, offering to involve himself day by day in our marriages if we open them to him. What is victory in this spiritual battle? Well, it's not perfection, uh, but it is permanence. It is not faultlessness, but it is faithfulness. Let me say right at the start a couple of things, uh, friends. First, here's something I'm, I'm not going to cover. It's not addressed explicitly by the text, and we just don't have time. I'm not going to be addressing the issue of divorce uh, when, when, it's, uh, when it may be right, uh, when it may not be right, um, because the focus of this text, uh, as you'll see as we go through it, really is about making the most and fighting for the marriage that you're in. And the passage does speak mainly into married life. I am aware that there are many here, perhaps the majority, who are, um, uh, who are currently single. And I know um, for many, 
Um, that may be a, a particular sadness. It may be a particular struggle. And I'm aware that the single life brings particular struggles uh, and particular uh, pressures. Uh, th- tonight, our focus has to be on uh, God's word to married uh, folk and married life, although I think there is some, um, some stuff here on um, how we think of sex as, uh, when, when we are single, and we'll come to that in a moment. But I wanted to say right at the outset that Dan is in a few weeks' time, I think, in a couple of weeks' time, is speaking on Proverbs and friendship. And I know he'll think in that sermon much more about uh, how, we, uh, uh, how the church community is one that should be providing the kind of close, intimate relationships uh, and, and, and pastoring to one another in that sense for those who are single as well as those who are married, providing friendships that, um, that fulfill uh, that sense of need of relationship whether we're single or married. But I think Dan will say more on that when he gets to it. I came across this in an article as well that I thought was interesting. Um, The writer said this, As Christians, we say that sex is a wonderful gift from God, yet we are uh, strangely silent on the topic and uncomfortable in the rare instances when it is discussed. And um, I think part of that can be embarrassment. (laughs) And I don't know, maybe that you're feeling a little bit embarrassed uh, now. Um, I think I want to say to that, I, I can understand it to some extent, um, but I think we want to be in a church, don't we, where we don't duck issues, and where issues that the Bible addresses and speaks openly on, and with no sense of shame, actually, is allowed to speak that way to us, and that subjects, uh, certain subjects aren't suddenly made taboo subjects, because I think if that happens, that is profoundly dangerous. And so we speak as the Bible speaks, and it speaks uh, on at sex quite openly and quite explicitly. The article went on to say this, is it surprising then that the typical teenager assumes that Christianity is basically against sex? Well, I hope that you'll discover that nothing could be further from the truth as we look at this passage uh, from uh, Proverbs this evening. The Bible has a wonderfully high view of sex, but like fire, it is only good in the right setting. Fire in the fireplace warms. Fire on my skin burns. Context is key. There are two things I want to draw out of our passage this evening from Proverbs, and here's the first. The writer says, reject sex outside of your marriage. Reject sex outside of your marriage. Have a look at verses 15 to 17, or have a listen as I read them. Drink water from your own cistern, uh, running water from your own well, Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Those opening verses, particularly 15 to 17, are a call. They're a metaphor, but the metaphor is clear from the rest of the chapter and what comes after it. They are a call to sexual faithfulness to our spouse if we are married. And I think, too, implicitly, they are a call to celibacy if we are single. Notice the stress on your that runs through it. The emphasis isn't on, it's not to do with possession here. The emphasis is all about partnership and exclusivity. It's about... um, being faithful to the one that you have made a covenant relationship with, a commitment to, a binding promise to. Sex belongs to your spouse and to your spouse alone, which immediately, of course, put 
puts God in many ways at odds with our culture. And so the question is, why does he call us to live this way? There are many things we could say, but here are some. First, marriage is not a cultural construct. It's not a human invention. It's not a piece of paper. Neither is it a means to self-fulfillment, and we'll come back to that point in a minute. Marriage and sex within it are given as a pattern of life that is to be a living picture, a living parable of God's faithful, exclusive, life-giving love for his people. And so straight away, we're reminded that we are to be, if we're married, faithful to our spouses because God is faithful to his spouse, the church, us, me, you. He is faithful to the promises he made and makes to us. And he calls us as his people to live like him as we're being renewed in his image, to reflect something of him in our relationships, including our married relationships, and to reflect him in our married relationships is to be faithful. The promises we make to create our marriages reflect and rely on those promises of God which binds us to him when we accept them. And sex is given by God to be the physical expression with our bodies of the promises we have made with our lips. Sex is designed to be a regular restatement and renewal of our wedding promises. Now, one writer said this, sex is the physical reenactment of the inseparable oneness in all the other areas that you have pledged yourself to, economic, legal, personal, psychological, all the areas of oneness that the marriage bond creates. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, exclusively to you. It is a promise. But it's even more than that. It's a power. It has a living power, a God-given power. Because sex is given to unite. It, it unites people physically, emotionally, psychologically. That's its job. In other words, do you see, it, it, it does what it promises. I'm promising oneness And sex itself brings about oneness at the physical, emotional, psychological level. And that is why sex outside of marriage is is a lie. It's a lie. You're saying one thing with your body and another thing with your life. And it is a damaging one. It's damaging uh, spiritually. It dishonors God and it breaks his law. It is to be faithless before the one who is faithful. It damages the other. Uh, It's a betrayal of our spouse if we're married. It damages us too. Um, I was very struck, uh, again, I think it was in uh, Tim Keller's book, which I'll come to later on, The Meaning of Marriage. He talks about, others have noted it too, that sex outside of marriage, um, particularly if it's repeated with uh, multiple partners, but it's true of one partner too, If you're not doing it in the context of a committed relationship, in the context of marriage, if you're not uniting yourself to this person physically because you are united to them legally and economically and in every other way that marriage binds you, if you're not committed to that person but you're wanting to have sex with them, then sex becomes reduced to a biological act. And to do that, you have to emotionally turn off its power to unite. 
because you're saying, actually, I'm not united to you forever. So you turn off that power to unite. You lose the intimacy that only marriage can bring you because actually you're always slightly worried, is this person going to ring me in the morning? The, the, the marriage vows aren't there that allow you to just uh, be yourself because this person is committed to me and I'm committed to them and we can build this on the vows, this intimacy. And so actually what starts to happen is that sex starts to lose its, its beauty, actually. Its beauty and its power. People come, become far less able to be intimate with people, more cynical and suspicious. Sex will lose its power to unite in the end. So says the writer of Proverbs, verses 15 to 17, don't squander the wonder of sex with someone who is not your spouse, for you will lose its wonder. The divine gift will become a shadow. It'll become an act of biology when it is meant to be much, much, much more than that. You will be turning intimacy into its parody. Well, that's a little bit on why we should live this way. How should we live this way? The first thing to say on this, I think, is there are many things. Here's the first. Don't believe the lie. Several lies. One is sex, sex is nothing. It is just an appetite to be sated like any other physical appetite. Very prevalent view in our culture. It leads to a very low view of sex. But there's an opposite view of sex, actually, which is also around in our culture, and which our culture kind of holds together with that, which is that sex is everything. That that it's the means to self-fulfillment and significance. Friends, that's too high a view of sex. Both views can tempt us towards extramarital sex. The Bible says, no, sex is a gift from God. That means, as we've seen, it is both significant, but it is never our saviour. Don't believe the lie that sexual temptation whispers, that sex outside of marriage will bring you life, will solve your problems, will bring you fulfillment, will make you special, will raise your self-esteem, will XXXX. Actually, don't believe that um, if sex within your marriage starts saying that. It's equally a lie. God is the great gift the great giver of life, the true foundation of self. Sex and marriage are passing away because they point to the greater life and joy that is found in Christ and will be fully experienced in heaven. So don't believe the lie. Second, be realistic. We are in all of us a spiritual battle. We are in a spiritual battle. Friends, let me say, and I can say this without a shadow of a doubt, The devil wants every man in this room to have sex with someone who is not his wife. That is what the devil would love. And he would love every woman in this room to have sex with somebody who is not her husband. We are in a spiritual battle. There are practical ways that we can avoid this sin. Uh, Have a look at verse 8. If you've got page 639, we're not uh, looking at all of Proverbs 5, but verse 8 is interesting because the whole thing is about how to uh, avoid adultery. Verse 8, keep to a path far from her, which is sexual immorality. Do not go near the door of her house. In other words, one of the ways we keep ourselves from sexual immorality, sexual temptation, is to make sure that we are walking as far away from that door as possible. If we think there's a door over here that could be tempting, very practical advice from Proverbs 5, yeah, walk the other way. 
if there is a relationship on Facebook that is getting altogether too friendly, an old flame perhaps, then we disconnect it and we talk to our spouse. If there's a relationship in the office or at the school gate that is becoming, uh, we feel it emotionally uh, strong and pulling, then we take a step back and we talk to our spouse and we talk to our friends. If our internet needs filters, whatever it might be, we, we take practical steps to walk in the opposite direction to that which might pull us into sex outside of our marriage. That is not the focus, however, of Proverbs 5. We'll come to that in a minute. But before we do, I want us to pause at this point. I want us to pause and remember the words of the angel to Mary and Joseph. What do they say? They say, you shall name this son Mary is about to bear, Jesus, which means saviour, because he will save his people from their sins. That's what he does. That's what he delights to do. That's what he has himself called saviour. The scope of Jesus' life and death can encompass every sin, including sexual ones. He is an all-loving, all-powerful saviour. The cross is not wimpy. It extends depth and breadth and makes forgiveness for any and every sin forgivable. And there may be some here who need to hear that this evening and who need to hold on to that in particular. An awareness of sexual sin should never lead us to despair, but always to repentance. Repentance and a renewed and deeper joy in our Savior who has seen it and who has died to cover it if we would but bring it before him. And if you have never faced that, if there is a sexual sin in your past or uh, that you are sort of carrying now or engaged in now and you've never faced it, never dealt with it, then tonight would be a good time to come before the Lord in repentance, maybe to talk to uh, myself, to Dan or somebody, and to begin to think what repentance and restoration in the power and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ looks like. We need to uh, heed the warnings here. I guess uh, any of us who have been burned would want us to heed the warnings here. Sexual sin is serious, and the devil would love us to fall into it. We're to reject sex outside of our marriage, and one of the ways we do that, and the way that Proverbs 5 focuses on, is to rejoice in the spouse of our marriage. And here, of course, the focus is on particularly on married uh, couples. Rejoice, Proverbs says, Verse 18, rejoice in the wife of your youth. And that takes effort. That takes effort, rejoice in the husband of your youth, substitute. The attention you paid, in other words, to your fiancé, the attention you paid to your new spouse, maintain it, the writer of Proverbs says. Don't let familiarity make you forgetful. Don't coast. Uh, don't let busyness take your eyes off your spouse because that's when small things become subconsciously big things. That's when you wake up uh, 10 years down the line to find that uh, your spouse is now um, a stranger. 
I love this uh, quote from, uh, I think it's pronounced Diane Solly. She said, love doesn't commit suicide. We have to kill it, though it often simply dies of our neglect. And I think that's right. Marriages cannot survive on autopilot. Rejoice. What does that look like? Well, here's a few things that I found as I was reading articles and books in preparation for this talk this week. Here's a list of several things that I thought was, personally was quite helpful. Things to commit to in terms of actively rejoicing in our spouse regularly. I will actively pursue loving my spouse. Actively pursue it. I will learn, this person was a, a man, so he's speaking to her, but you can just flip it around. Learn her, dis, uh, her, learn her likes and dislikes, her strengths and weaknesses, her fears and her joys, and I'll fuel them or I'll fight them with her as appropriate. I will look for ways to delight in my marriage. I'll praise what is good, and I will choose to delight in difference rather than resent it or let me wind it up, not wind me up. In other words, he says, I'll ask myself the question, why has God seen fit to put us together if we're so very different in this reason, in this area? Maybe because God has put us together precisely so that we both bring different strengths and different weaknesses. I will never stop pursuing my spouse romantically. Uh, the importance of making regular time, date nights, time to speak, time to listen. I think there's a sense in verses 18 and 19 of the writer of Proverbs rehearsing the, the physical attributes of their spouse. I will never stop pursuing my spouse romantically. I'll be willing to make the sacrifices necessary to keep my marriage a priority. There are many things that can begin to squeeze the marriage to the corner and our spouse to the corner of life. Work, children, other friendships. These are all good things. Of course they are. But uh, none of them... Uh, should displace our spouse as our principal earthly relationship. I'll search daily for verbal and nonverbal ways to communicate love. And I'll commit to dealing regularly with those things in our marriage that makes joy hard, the hurts and the disappointments. We won't let the sun go down on our anger. And we'll do this in the context of grace and forgiveness and support from others if that is needed. And you might be able to think of several other ways too. Actively rejoicing in our spouse. It may sound hard. It is. Good things take effort, and marriage is no exception. But God stands ready and willing to give us the grace that we need to build a healthy marriage. Why is rejoicing in our marriage to be something that we need to work at regularly? Why is it ongoing? Well, let me, let me tell you something, and I don't think I'm breaking any confidences. Philippa has been married to four men in the past. She has been married to a young church apprentice. She has been married to a newly married man living in America. She has been married to a mature student with newborn children, and she has been living with a, uh, married to a midlife husband with three children and a paunch. And I can tell you now, and I think that may have given it away, <coughs> I can, I'm not entirely sure I'm happy with you laughing at you. Um, I can tell you now she'll be married to many more. Uh, she'll be married to many more. And um, 
actually for the recording, just to say that I'm, I'm referring to myself. If you're listening to, if, if you're listening to uh, those were all me. Um, <clears throat> the point, of course, is that we change. We change, don't we? Of course we do, day by day. Therefore, we must actively choose to rejoice in. That, that's got to be an on, it's got to be an ongoing thing. Marriage has got to be an ongoing process of rejoicing in the person before me today. Or we'll find a dangerous distance has developed. And as we make much of each other, so we are enabled to make the most of uh, the sex life that God calls us into in marriage. I read, uh, I think this is true, I, I hope it is, that back in the days of the Puritans, back in the sort of 17th century, in New England, uh, America, one wife apparently complained to her pastor, and then in fact to the whole church family, that her husband was neglecting their sex life. And uh, the elders of the church put him under church discipline. And uh, I think Proverbs says that's right, I think, as does 1 Corinthians 7. I don't know if it's something we'll know. God commands us... God commands us not to neglect our sex life if we're in, a, in marriage. Isn't that what 1 Corinthians 7 is saying? Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you. I think he's probably got Proverbs 5 and other places like that in mind. Here in Proverbs 5, it is more than do not deprive, isn't it? Actually, the language is delight in. The language is uh, be captivated or better still, intoxicated, be love drunk almost. Language is erotic and ecstatic. Sex between spouses is God's gift to married couples. It's given to keep them, uh, to, to, uh, to keep them close to one another and uh, to keep them from temptation. There are other reasons too, but that's two reasons. It's therefore something to be received with thanksgiving and experienced joyfully uh, and regularly. Uh, if sex is to be the intimate, mutual, loving thing, which it's supposed to be, the only sex the Bible countenances, then husband and wife need to, of course, agree on uh, what works for them, what fits them in terms of routine, when, and that will change in age and stage and all the, all the rest. But there is to be some sort of regularity about it. Neither party should want to deny the other. In fact, both parties should want to, insofar as they can, please the other physically. Now, this is important. The Bible is clear that we do not build our marriages on the sexual side of them, the sex lives. We build it on the promises that we exchanged on that wedding day. But we can, and indeed we, we, we should, we're encouraged to build our marriages and the sex lives within them on the promises that we made on our wedding day. Indeed, it is those promises, as we've said, that create the conditions of trust and intimacy and commitment and security that are the catalysts for a healthy sex life, and one that develops and changes over a lifetime. This passage encourages, in fact, even commands us to make um, our sex lives with our spouses as healthy as we can, uh, both to uh, enjoy the gift that God has given us, but also to protect us, one of the ways to protect us from sexual immorality. And so the question for us is, are we taking steps to address our marriages and our sex lives within them together? Do we see our marriages and our sex lives as part of our discipleship, as part of how we live as Christian people before the face of the Lord? Do we see our marriages and our sex lives as acts of worship? Because they are. Are we seeking God's empowering grace for this area of our lives? This and countless other passages in the Bible tell us that we should 
There is a lot one could say on this, and I, I, I need to stop, so I'm going to. Um, but let me give you a few books um, and encourage you to talk to those you know, those you trust, um, uh, house groups or to uh, Dan and I, staff team. But as I was talking to a couple of people, there were a few books that were recommended to me. Um, Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, I find personally very helpful. I've read it, so I can recommend it. Uh, the Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller, I find very helpful. We run every year a marriage course here. Rachel and Phil Allen run it, and it is excellent. Philip and I did it seven or eight years ago. Found it really helpful. They've produced a book that goes with the course. It's called The Marriage Course, and The Marriage Course book, I suppose. Anyway, um, brilliant. Great book, full of lots of really helpful advice on, this, on all these sorts of areas. Really helpful. I commend it to you. And then I spoke to Rachel and Phil Allen, who are running the marriage course at the moment. Actually, it's just coming to an end, this year's marriage course, but we shall run it again next year. Um, and they recommend two books in particular that they have found very helpful. I have not read these, therefore I cannot commend them personally, but they both recommend it. Selwyn Hughes, Marriage as God Intended, they find very helpful, although they disagree with him on divorce. And um, Marriage Takes More Than Love by Jack and Carol Mayhall. If you want the details of these, just come and see me afterwards. They also think that is very helpful too. And as I was talking to a, a GP, I was struck. They said that, uh, with a GP hat on, that um, many, the proportion of people who at some point in their lives, in their marriage lives, face some sort of sexual issue or sexual problem is very high. And they said the vast majority of uh, issues and problems to do with sex can be solved, uh, either through counseling or through medication. And so speak to uh, GPs. Proverbs closes, verse 21. For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin holds him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. Doesn't celibacy outside of marriage and faithful monogamy in marriage tie me? Well, yes. But it ties us to what is good. Like the sun ties the earth to its warm and prevents it flying off to its destruction, it ties us to the best of us. It frees us from living at the hands of our own emotions and our own whims and our own appetites. I was very struck by this comment. A lot of people are afraid that vows limit your freedom. That's not true. You are really more free by making a vow and sticking with it than in the sense of being the victim of your own desires, impulses and feelings. I think that's true. Freedom is found in orbiting the Lord in his ways, sexual faithfulness to our spouse, celibacy outside of marriage, and the power to live this way, and we need it, is found in the faithful, self-giving love of God who has bound himself to us. Our marriages are designed to reflect this faithful, joy-bringing love, which they will do insofar as they are relying on such faithful, joy-bringing life as is found in the gospel. And looking forward to the day when, of course, marriage will be no more. Now, the shadow will have given way to reality, and we all shall experience the fullness of the joy of unity with Christ. Amen.